Hey there, everybody. Danielle and Dave Rieger on a beautiful blustery Thursday and a, a last-minute fill-in by your pal, Chris. How's everybody today? We're good, Chris. We are doing well. Good. How's the mic? How's the mic sound from over here in the snow? Sounds good. The uh, the drive-in a uh, little slow this morning. I can imagine it was a little dicey by me too. I actually got pulled over this morning because the uh, sheriff couldn't see my plate and he wanted to just give me a heads up. That was a nice 20 minute really? waste of my time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they, yeah. They can pull you over for that. You got to clean off that snow. Well, I mean, the, the wheels are spitting up mud and slow snow and slush all over the license plate cover. Anyway, I don't know what right. to do about that. Yeah. You know, when I tease my, I got some hippie friends in my life, you know, the tree hugging types and they always say things, well, the, you know, you got to pay attention to what the universe wants. And I was just roll my eyes. Like, okay. Yeah. The universe. But, on a day like today, when I have a 12 o'clock appointment with a client coming into my office, they email early in the morning and say, that's not going to work out today. We're not feeling top notch. You know, we'll come next week. And then I think to myself, what the heck am I going to do for from 12 to three until my next client comes in? And then you almost immediately call me and say, listen, Paul doesn't feel well. Would you mind jumping on the show? See, things work, see how things work out. It sounds like the universe, Danielle, doesn't it? Danielle has also stepped out for a second. So it's, oh. uh, so it's just you and I. What a universe we're in. So yeah. um, pretty busy show. This is a very, uh, very Paul show, considering that I don't see as many guests typically on the sheet, but we're going to have fun with it. Um, one of the things that I immediately grabbed me was that while prices are, what, 17% higher across the board, and that's consumer goods, you know, it includes you know, food and beverage, it includes merchandise, general, what they call general merchandise, clothing items, so on and so forth. Um Prices are higher, but consumer spending continues to go up. Yeah. And, you know, it wasn't that long ago. We did a little segment on the credit card expenditures, and Andrea Bightley was on with us, who's going to join us again right. today right. to talk about that. Because on one hand, if delinquencies on credit cards are going up because the so many of them are maxed out, where is this money coming from? Right. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not sure. Yeah, kind of an odd Conundrum. I thought you were going to mention your uh, your favorite guy on at one thirty uh, to talk about the uh, well two things. One is the the the, the new tax rebate on the EVs, mm -hmm. and then the other thing is the people that have EVs not happy with how they are performing in this weather. Yeah, I mean, I assume you're referring to Paul Eisenstein, who yes. actually, I think Paul, I think Paul's fantastic, my favorite guy. I just like debating with him because I, I think I know you do to a large degree. He is 100 percent in, and he thinks EVs are the solution, and that they are bashed, overly bashed by the people on generally the right. And I have not completely bought into this, but I did read. I'm sure you saw some of them too. Several articles about the coldest parts of the country, there's Tesla's lined up, just not running because they can't Correct. hold a charge when Correct. it's five degrees or 15 below. Yes. My brother has a Tesla and um, he has been uh, commenting that the charge does not last as long. The stories that we've seen nationally are people trying to uh, go to the superchargers and not working regular to get their cars charged so the supercharger is the one that you can sit there for 15 minutes and it's full, basically. right so it's so it's tough right now hmm. i don't know i still i maintain my position that i would be a happy ev owner i think if it was something cool and sporty or utilitarian and fit a need in my life but it would not be my primary vehicle i mean my right. office is 20 minutes from my house sure i didn't ever have to stop and get gas and just zip so back that and would forth. Be, so fun. that would be cool but you're not 
necessarily going on a long trip because of the fact that there, it has not gotten to the point where there is enough chargers everywhere. And this uh, range anxiety that EV owners have, it, 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 it's a real thing. It is. It is a real thing. And I, they're still very, very expensive, especially for the ones, you know, like if you're a single person, they are expensive. you know, you're a couple and you got one kid or a little, you know, a little white dog that you run around with in a, in a crate. And it's just the two of you and a couple pieces of luggage. I can see that. But when you get into the, you know, you have three, four kids and you got to go to Meyer and then Costco and this kid got to go to soccer. And it, it gets to be the, the stuff that has the capacity for that. I mean, you're getting up towards a hundred grand. So that $7,500, you know, tax credit, tax rebate, however you're going to frame it. It doesn't go that far when you're spending that much money. Sure. And then general unhappiness of the limitations of the vehicle have to have something to do there, with it. But then there are people that, that, that swear by them, and there are people mm-hmm. that, that love them. And, uh, and we did – I have taken a trip up north during the summer with uh, my brother's EV, and it, it worked out okay. We had it planned out pretty well. Yeah, listen, in, in two weeks or so, I'll be out in – Phoenix, yeah, three weeks for the for the waste management. Oh, yeah, you're open. gonna be at the waste management, right? Yeah. Yeah, every year it's like you know it's a it's a pilgrimage out there, and we play for a few days, and sometimes I get to be in the pro am and hang out with the pros, and sometimes you just walk along in the fairways and you know say hi to everybody. But when you're out in Scottsdale, which is a very very wealthy area, there's yeah. no doubt about it. Yep. There's Teslas everywhere. Oh yeah, of course. I mean everywhere. Makes but of course sense. they don't have the cold issue. Right? Sure. I mean they have heat issues right. some parts of the year. Right, and heat and is- the extreme heat does also drain with the air conditioning does drain the battery a little quicker too. So that makes sense. Yeah. Have you ever used Turo? Um, it's no, it's but no, but I've heard about it. That's I, I have heard of it. That's the rental the car. First right? time I used Turo, which is basically like an Airbnb for cars. You know, it's an alternative to to renting a car from you know right. your Hertz or your Avis or Enterprise or whatever. Sure. Right. Um, I, I only used it because I could not find any available car for kind of a last minute trip. And I ended up getting a Tesla from somebody's Turo and it was about the same money I would have spent anyway. And I thought this is the first time I ever drove. I thought this would be cool. It took me like 20 minutes just to figure out how to turn everything on and right. so on and so forth. Right. I it did feel a bit like an, like an alien. Hey, Sean Fain uh, is angry again. Yes, he is a hundred percent. He's not happy with the way that the people are being treated. We're going to get into that. Um, you know, we'll have an expert come on. This is not. Does, it doesn't sound surprising, does it? I mean, he's very, very upset that that a great amount of these temp employees have been let go. But the, the confusing thing that no one's really mentioning in these headlines is: is that not by definition what a temp worker is? Yeah, one hundred percent. So, um, yeah, but he's but he's heading down to uh, I think to the to the VD plant or something to go talk to them. I thought the, uh, maybe it's the Volkswagen plant. It's in what, Tennessee? I think so. I know Paul's rundowns are 20 pages long. The ones you send me are for the little kids, you know, the rookie. Is right. Like two well, pages I wanted long. to make I sure. To yes. find wanted to make sure that uh, you had all the information since. Uh, yeah. So it's, yes. it's Volkswagen. Yeah. Right. That, that he is specifically upset about and he's sending a representative down there. So, I mean, that'll be kind of an interesting story just to find out if there's anything surprising there. Daniel Howell, joyous. Um, from Detroit News. I think that that's a little bit odd. I don't understand. If they're not temporary employees, then they're permanent employees. So why are we calling them temporary employees and then getting upset when they're let go? Because if they don't need them, they don't need them. It wasn't that long ago we had, um, oh, geez, I'm losing my mind at 47. Tom Barrett on the show, uh, right. you know, from Senator Lansing, who Correct. was basically saying the same thing. You know, he was warning that especially, you know, amidst all the turmoil with the strikes, a lot of people were going to be let go. They're letting go of permanent employees, I don't know why this is a surprise that temps are being let go, but I guess we'll we'll get some insight. 
from uh, Mr. Howe. And then after the break, Marie's going to come on to talk about cancer. Really interesting cancer story. More people are getting it. Seems to be younger. And younger, it seems to yeah. be just certain strands. Well, certain strands, certain types of cancer. I've had a handful of people in my life in my 40s who've had bouts with cancer. And it sure is. A, now, most of them have been resolved. You know, but let's hear from Marie here after the break. Thanks for letting me fill in back in just a few. So a new report from the American Cancer Society finds that more people are getting colon cancer and other cancers at younger ages, and it's just not clear why. In addition, there's more people being diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, even though the survival rate for the disease itself is improving. WJR senior news analyst, who I call the bell of the ball, Marie Osborne, takes a closer look at those numbers. Hi, Chris. Well, this study looked at several things, and it found that colon cancer, breast cancer, and cervical cancers, among other types, are on the rise. But what's really concerning here for doctors and researchers, people are getting these cancers at younger ages, and often they are found to be more aggressive cancers. Colorectal cancer, once the fourth leading cause of cancer deaths for people younger than 50, it is now the leading cause for men and ranking second for women. Pancreatic cancer, one cancer that we know has long been difficult to diagnose and to treat, it is on track to becoming the second leading cause of cancer-related deaths. But just a bit of good news on that front. There is some good news here. The five-year survival rate has increased to 13%. That's up from 6% just a decade ago. Now, the big question is, why is all this happening? Researchers aren't sure. Some point to increased obesity, maybe something in our diet or environment. One theory is the overuse of antibiotics that have been shown to impact our microdome. And what we're talking about there is those trillions of bacteria that live in our uh, gut. Some of them seem to be linked to this increase in colon cancers and others point well, to the consumption of meat, ultra-processed foods, we're talking about packaged stuff, alcohol, tobacco, sitting around too much. Chris, there is one good bit of good news in this report. We want to make sure people hear this. People diagnosed with cancer are living longer, dying less often. Five-year survival rate now stands at almost 70%, according to this study. That's up from less than half in the 1970s. Yeah, that's incredible. And and very good news for everybody. But early screening of these things has to be now. Mm-hmm. Those numbers have to start to move, right? When it, they used to say, Marie, especially as a male, right? If you were 50 or 55, you were due for a colonoscopy. Those numbers are moving down to the mid 40s, are they not? Oh, yeah. 45 is now the age for colonoscopy. Um, And they say even with um, that number at 45, if you have a history of cancer in your family or other factors, you need to talk to your doctor because you may need it earlier than that. Again, the interesting thing is that they're finding not only are people younger when they're getting it, it's also more aggressive and they're trying to figure out why that is. Yeah. Well, certainly it's got to be a lot of lifestyle stuff, diet stuff, with the, the, the ultra processing of the foods that we consume. You know, when you look at some of the studies, Marie, from, for example, Sweden and Norway and Finland, a lot of the Nordic countries, they have a tremendous amount of fermented food in their diet. Things like sauerkraut, for example, and a lot of yep. fish, things like that. And they're, because their gut environment is so different than ours, 
they rarely, I mean, they die from different things. They, they certainly don't have a, you know, much, much longer life expectancy than we do in the States or in North America in general, but the, the pervasiveness of those kind of cancers that are gut related are not even close. So certainly we, we all need myself included to clean it up a little bit when it comes to, you know, what we're putting in our belly. Yeah. And pass the coleslaw, right? Um, I, I've read those studies as you have about the um, fermented food and uh, Japanese people also, uh, Japanese, Japanese sure. cuisine is also filled with um, fermented foods and they seem really weird to our palate, but uh, there's mounting evidence that shows there may be a connection to all this. Yeah. You know, I have a friend, this is so anecdotal, but I have a friend that mixes sauerkraut into their salads. And the first time I heard that, I thought, well, that's odd. And I really like to cook. I've been around cooks and chefs my whole life in my family. And she said, well, why is it odd? It's crunchy and it's kind of sour and adds a nice bite to the salad. You actually don't know it's there, but you, you recognize the flavor and you say, well, wow, that's rather nice. But that's the only way. And her husband had some kind of colon issue. And that's why they started eating sauerkraut yeah. almost daily. And it was kind of hidden in there. It's pretty interesting. You know, I have a couple of clients um, who are in the oncology world. I have a lot of doctors in my client life. And, and both of them have said, one especially has said, before I die, there will be a cure for most cancers. I have a client even that's oh. been 11 years with stage three or four at this point, I think, lung cancer. And when I found out he had lung cancer, I said, you got to be kidding me for how long? And he said, it's been you know 10 years or so. But he's on a pill that has stopped it from metastasizing to the point where he really got in the danger zone. His life is a little bit limited, but I mean, you would never know talking to the man. So, I mean, praise the Lord, there's been so many advances in that that specific demographic. But it is scary to know that not only are they more aggressive, but they're starting to appear younger. Well, and that's what this study is finding, kind of what you just talked about, your your client there, that yes, people were better able to treat these cancers. Wow, that's great news. People are living longer. That's great news. The problem is that we're seeing more people who are younger getting cancer. So it's, you know, that that's really an issue. Was there anything in this report um, in terms of the the incidence rate that that popped out to you. I mean, the, when we talk about people getting uh, diagnosed younger, did it did it mention how much younger? I mean, we're talking about you know an average of six months or a few years. Oh Is no, alarmingly we're talking early? years. You know, like uh, well, again, going back to colon cancer, we're talking uh, sometimes under forty, and not just sometimes that there that that's a, that there has been a market increase of people under forty, uh, who who are now being diagnosed with that. And interestingly enough, you know, they usually go in, these younger people go in because they're having some other kind of problem, um, you know, maybe some abdominal pain, or if it's a woman, you know, there's maybe some issues having to do with reproductive things. So they go to the doctor for that, and then they suddenly discover this this other cancer. Yeah, and you know, men are not very good at this, right? We, and myself included. No. We tend to not want to go. I mean, I always have that thought in the back of my mind. Well, I feel okay. I'll probably, you know, get over it. I'll feel better in a few days anyway. And oftentimes you do. And you think the last thing I want is for them to tell me, you know, there might be something wrong and we need to go get an MRI and then you got to live, you know, paralyzed in fear for the next month or two. But it's often those cases that the people in my life that are in the medical side, mostly the client people will tell you like that. That's the dumbest thing you can possibly think. The, the earlier, you know, the higher your survival rate. And it's not even close. It's just, a horrible way to live as a man to say, I don't want to go to the doctor because he's going to tell me something's wrong. Yeah, that you don't want to hear, right? We've had that, believe it or not, we've had that conversation right here in our house as well. So we, yeah, I totally understand. But, uh, I, you know, I've been known to even say to my husband, 
put your big boy pants on and let's go. This has got to get done. I think women are more used to uh, going to the doctor because we're the ones who have the babies. And so, you know, at a younger age, we get used to having to take care of those issues. So it's a little a little easier for us. Men, it's just different for them. Well, I you're just more mature as a species. Well, there's that. that. <laughs> there's that. <laughs> Marie, thank you for, for the update. It's a very interesting story, and we'll continue to watch that. Um, Dave Rieger, I don't know, at, at our age, you know, you and I are similar in age. How many friends do you know that have died from cancer? Well, Dave might not be popped in back yet. But I'll, I know that I've had um, several friends, you know, sub 50 years old that have been diagnosed at one time or another with cancer. And to this point, all of them have survived, and many of them now I think all of them are, are more than five years cancer-free. A couple of them are 10, and, and two of them, one specifically who's very close in my life, was it was a horrible diagnosis. So we are definitely trending in the right direction, but this is a good thing to hear, if nothing else, and for the wake-up call. All right, we'll be back in just a few minutes. Don't go anywhere. We'll look after months of uh, hand-wringing and argumentation amongst the big three in the UAW with Sean Fain being the spearhead of the strike that, that had us all on notice for a long time, caused quite a bit of economic turmoil here, especially in our state, but across the country. Uh, Sean is angry again, and he's angry because of layoffs, especially to temporary workers. He used the words heinous and shameful to describe them uh, being let go. So joining us is Daniel Howe, senior editor and business columnist from the Detroit News. Daniel, thanks for coming on the program. What can you tell us about this story that um, we need to know? Uh, I think probably the first thing I would tell you and the last thing I would tell you is that uh, his criticism probably bounced right off Stellanus uh, with a big uh, shoulder shrug. Uh, I think, frankly, uh, they don't care. Um, And I say that because they're led by... Carlos Tavares, who is really a, a global business guy, he does not have the connections and the emotional connections to Detroit, not to Detroit, to the Detroit industry, that arguably Mary Barra, GM, and, and Jim Farley, of course, at Ford have, and Bill Ford for that matter. Um, they uh, have been pretty uh, pitiless in some of their uh, their cost-cutting. Uh, as you, some of your listeners may know, they, they've pulled out of the Chicago Auto Show, and this is kind of part and parcel with that is uh, they did an assessment of their manufacturing footprint and decided that uh, some of these jobs were superfluous. They were contractors. They were not full-time employees, as I understand it. And uh, so they made the move. What is, for for the listener who doesn't know, and I think that probably includes me to some degree, when we hear a temp worker, temporary worker, or contract worker, are those two things interchangeable? Is a contract worker that comes on for a specific project also considered a temp worker? And if so, the, the definition of temporary is you're not going to be here forever. Why is this a surprise? Well, I, I think that's, you're raising a really good question. Why is it a surprise? I mean, this is ex, excess cost, and these are people who are not uh, uh, considered to be full-time employees in the classic sense of the term as I understand it. A temp worker uh, can be people that are brought in uh, for manufacturing purposes and they are paid wages. They do have, I think, I think they have some kinds of benefits uh, and ultimately they can be converted into full-time employees. Contractors are just what the name implies. Oftentimes they don't have a full suite of benefits or any, or any benefits depending on the contract and, and the employer. Um, So, 
uh, I, I think this is kind of a tempest in a teapot, to be honest with you. Uh, and I think, uh, but I think, you know, Sean Fain is very adept and proven himself very adept in his team to be very adept at uh, seizing on the rhetorical uh, opportunities and using them as an opportunity to, to, to essentially bludgeon uh, the uh, auto companies in what I call a violation of Howe's Rule 104, thou shalt not give an enemy a club to beat, beat me with. Yeah. And, uh, and I think, you know, this is a classic case of, I'm sure the Stellanus people knew this would be the likely response, and but I think they're 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 that doesn't mean they don't do it. Uh, yeah, so they have a business to run. Yeah, and, yeah that's a, and no, that's no, that's no more uh, obvious than in the case of Carlos Tavares. Yeah. Look, can we go back a few weeks? I was talking with Tom Barrett about the the creation of the SOAR fund. Uh, from Lansing that was fairly bipartisan, but it was it was one of Whitmer's projects. And, you know, mm-hmm. that that didn't turn out that well. And then there was, of course, immediate layoffs, you know, outside of Lansing, GM and, and others. But some of that, of course, it, there was no correlation coefficient between the two of those things. So you're looking at it saying, well, of course, they're laying off people. They just lost billions and billions of dollars fighting against this strike, much of which they had to borrow. Is this layoff of the temp workers something that can be related almost immediately back to the initial impact now, post-impact of having the strike in the first place? That's a great question. I mean, I think one of the uh, the untold or under-examined uh, uh, issues of the strike is just how much uh, they these companies feel that they can afford. Now, I've been told by uh, ranking executives is that they feel that <clears throat> they can chin these additional uh, costs. I think we're going to get a much better understanding of that here next week uh, when we get uh, Q4 and full-year earnings reports from uh, GM, I believe, is on the 31st of January, uh, and uh, Ford is, I think, February 1st. Mm-hmm. So we're going to get a better understanding of what the uh, costs are. Uh, but the per-head costs have, have increased dramatically, higher than the companies expected that they were going to have to shoulder uh, coming through these negotiations. And, and frankly, they did not turn out the way I think a lot of them anticipated. And the bad feeling and bad blood that remains, I think, is likely to remain for some period of time. Dan, when we hear that that term, the bump, the UAW bump, when I first heard it, I thought it was referring to the bump in pay, the 25% you know, contractual mm-hmm. increase. But it's it's used in a, in a few different uh, ways in some of these articles. Is that the way we should be perceiving it? Is the UAW bump really is just the obligations to to raise pay and benefits? No, I think I, I, I would I think what they mean more specifically is the UAW bump is what the the likes of Toyota, Hyundai, Nissan, and the rest have done in response to a the contract and b the vow by the the new UAW to make a renewed organizing push of the plants down south. I mean, that's part of the whole great strategy here of Sean Fain and the people around him, uh, who are, some of whom are real true believers, were in the Bernie Sanders for president campaign, uh, really have a, a, a philosophical uh, affinity with, with the senator from Vermont. Um, and, and that is that they're going to use the success of this um, negotiation with the big three as a calling card to organize plants down south. And they've already got, I think, like 2,000 
uh, card signed down at Volkswagen in Chattanooga out of about 5,500 people. Uh, Mercedes at Mercedes in Alabama, they've also got some card, card signatures. Uh, and I think there's a belief that they're going to be able to succeed where they have otherwise utterly failed, uh, which is to organize one of those plants. And I think Volkswagen in Chattanooga is probably the best shot. I mean, Tennessee's already got UAW representation. Uh, with GM and Spring Hill. Um, Chuck Browning, the VP and head of the Ford Department, is heading down to Tennessee this weekend uh, to rally the troops, as it were, uh, and to answer questions and make the case again uh, for the UAW uh, for UAW representation. And Chuck Browning, it should be said, is, is a head and shoulders uh, the most experienced negotiator and vice president that they have at the UAW. And if you if you polled privately uh, executives in the industry here in town, they would all tell you to a person they thought he was going to be the next president. So well, the fact that he's going down there <laughs> indicates their importance. Yeah, that's ironic, too, especially because so many of the conversations in the non-unionized parts of the auto industry, you know, BMW down south, Volkswagen, Mercedes in Alabama, had been doing so well without the unionization. So now, now they're going after those, too. I guess the... The more the merrier in Sean Fain's eyes. Daniel, thanks for the report. That is very interesting stuff. Everyone hang tight back in just a brief few minutes. Well, how come, how come we keep spending and spending and spending and spending? That's the question. As the economists pointed out, they expected a lower spending trend going into the fourth quarter last year. And everyone was a bit surprised, frankly, when they kept on spending. Inflation has eased up a touch. I think it was just over 9% when it peaked in 22. But even with consumer goods still now 17% higher than average and credit card limits being bumped up against so much, a lot of delinquencies being reported, consumers continue to spend. It's a rather interesting topic. There's a bit of a, a contradiction in the way that we're looking at this. If most Americans are saying, look, I just don't feel like the economy is in a good place, but then they continue to push money into it, despite the fact that they're saying, in essence, I'm scared that the economy is going to continue to get worse. That's awfully confusing. And a good person to help us unwind that is Andrea Bightley. She's the Vice President of Marketing and Communications for the Michigan Retailers Association. Good afternoon, Andrea. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. How is life up north, if I remember correctly? Oh, well, I'm, I'm just in Lansing. It's not too far up north. Oh, I see. And here I thought you were up north somewhere. Maybe I'm thinking of somebody else. How could I forget you? <laughs> All right. So what's well, going on? Yeah. So retailers have had a really roller coaster 2023 and a strange start to 2024. Um, you know, sales increased at the end of the year as they do nearly every year. Um, we're not surprised and we're delightfully surprised in some cases that we saw general merchandise you know, go up, sales increased um, in both general merchandise and clothing and accessories. Uh, we did, however, see a little bit of a downturn in furniture and home furnishings because people aren't moving um, with housing prices and loans the way they are. Uh, folks are staying put. That's interesting. So, okay, if I'm not moving, I might not be refurnishing something to find new furniture that jives with the new paint and the new scheme. But I am spending just as much money or more money on things like clothing. What In that general merchandise category, is there any real heavy-hitting genres of the general merchandise category? I, that doesn't include, like, consumables and food and things, does it? 
No, but it includes, if you know, if you walk into, uh, say, a Target, for example, everything in there that's not, you know, your, your clothing and your accessories or your food items, that is what we consider general merchandise. So it's a pretty wide spectrum of items. Um, in some cases, it can include, um, you know, items that we would think of for holiday presents, you know, those tchotchke type things, um, items that, you know, you might purchase for a loved one around the holidays. So we definitely saw that increase um, around the holidays as we expect. You know, that's a category that is a pretty standard increase around the holiday season. Andrea, this might be too far down the, the nerdy financial rabbit hole, but that's the that's where I come from. So bear with me. When when we talk about an increase in spending in general merchandise, you know, there's more than one manufacturer of most goods. Some of them are kind of on the top shelf name brand side. Others are generic things. I can choose, for example, to buy Advil or I can get the house brand Advil at CVS or Meyer. And there's a, a fairly wide discrepancy in pricing. When we look at the report about the total percentage being up, is that the total amount of dollars being spent in that category or the amount of total expenditure? So, for example, might I be buying more things, but I'm buying cheaper things just at higher volume, or does it not make one bit of difference? Uh, It doesn't make one bit of difference, to to be very honest with you. Um, What we're, we're looking at is that total sales volume. So it doesn't necessarily matter if you're buying uh, 10 generic um, ibuprofens, or if you were buying name brand Advil and you're only buying one, we're looking at that straight number. Okay. So who is benefiting from that the most then, you know, from the, from a merchandiser standpoint in your, in your world where you're tracking all the retail numbers, is that, how does the economic benefit happen on the retailer side? Are they looking at this with you know, opportunism and a very optimistic attitude, or is it kind of a temporary thing that if it goes up this much despite expectations, it tends to trend down then afterwards when credit cards are maxed out and people already bought what they need? Sure. So our retailers are looking at numbers about a year in advance. So what we're seeing, what our sales are right now are items that were purchased about a year ago um, and getting ready to go to market um, over the past six months as things arrive to market, uh, in some cases from overseas, from some cases manufacturing facilities across the country. Um, what it really comes down to is retailers take all of these numbers and put them into a giant barrel and see what happens. Um, they're looking at every dime um, that is spent by consumers, where they're spending those dimes, um, nickels, quarters, pennies, et cetera, uh, in yes. order to make those orders. And over the past year, we've seen a lot of shakeups. We've seen numbers, um, great numbers for sales, and then we've seen some really poor numbers for sales. If we were going into the holidays and Michigan's retailers were seeing they weren't making those sales. Black Friday wasn't quite as black as they needed it to be. Um, we were moving into a pretty nerve-wracking December. So while we're looking at national numbers right now, uh, we're seeing a positive trend, um, and we're seeing that Americans have been willing to make these uh, make these spending decisions. Um, we're expecting to get our Michigan numbers here in the next week or so to really see how Michiganders spent their dollars uh, going into the holidays. So Andrea, then I have two follow-ups. One would be as more and more of these retailers in your associations have had some kind of online presence and, and perhaps instead of going to the brick and mortar, I could still buy 
you know, from the brick and mortar, but just use their online service versus kind of an Amazon or some big box retailer. Is that included in the number their online sales count? Online sales do count. Um, And in many ways, people are doing um, an online sale with a local retailer, whether that be um, picking up from a grocer or um, doing a curbside pickup from a smaller retailer. So that's all considered in part of these sales numbers. So is that something, you know, that you then, your association is trying to help people reconsider and encourage them, look, you know, support your local businesses to the degree that you can. And if you're going to go some, buy something online, see if they have it locally online. Is I mean, is that a campaign of yours at this point? It is. Um, our Buy Near Buy campaign has been in existence for just over 10 years now. And we are out in uh, communities around the city of Michigan talking about the importance of buying locally and the difference it makes in the economy. We're talking about tens of millions of dollars if Michiganians choose to buy locally, buy on your main street, buy um, in your community. Keeps those dollars local, keeps those tax dollars local, keeps those salaries local, um, keeps those dollars here where it, it really matters and really truly makes a difference. That's that's really cool. The, it's a great name to so buy nearby. If I were, there's no engine, is there that you know of a search engine where if I put in a piece of merchandise and I want to try and find it locally, that's awfully hard to do because so much, so many of those ads are sponsored websites and they're geofenced to an area near me. And no one, no small retailer is going to beat the Amazons and the and the WalMarts and so on and so forth. Is there a different way to do that? I mean, if you go to find something very specific want to buy it nearby online. Is there any better way to do it than just Googling it? Quite honestly, um, I'll jump on Facebook or do a quick Google search for some local stores in my area um, just to get a feel for what's out there. But it's really awesome to actually walk into a brick and mortar store, I have to say. Um, You get that full retail experience with somebody who knows what they're selling, knows what items are available, knows what they can you know, procure those items quickly, has great ideas probably for your loved ones. Uh, we're in the part of the year where retail sales are down. People have done their holiday shopping. They're feeling that little pinch in their, in their wallet. They're seeing that credit card bill come in the mail. Um, but if you are still out shopping, maybe you have a late January birthday and your family or friends, um, really hit those local retailers. They are, um, going to work harder for your dollar than uh, anything you find online. Yeah. There's no, there, remember the expression, there's no school like the old school. Exactly. I want to go into the store and hold it myself and look at it. And then somebody asked me if I need help. And I said, no, I don't need help. I just want to look at it for a minute before I actually pull the trigger. Hey, Andrea Bightley, thanks for joining the program. We're all spending more. Let's keep on spending. And if we can do it, let's, let's indeed buy nearby. All right. Back after the turn of the hour, we'll talk a little bit of lions with Dave Rieger. Well, hey there, everybody. 50-yard line is here halfway through the show. A last-minute fill-in while our, our guy, Paul W. Smith, has touched under the weather today. And I had enough time to jump behind a mic, Dave Rieger. We doing okay over there, bud? We are doing great. You're doing a great job. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks, man. Listen, we learned a lot today. Number one, you and I need to schedule colonoscopies right off the bat. Yes. Um Already have been. Daniel, that's not a laughing matter, young lady. No, it's not. I wasn't laughing. I said, ah, because I was shocked that you said it. I, you know, the funny thing about that is I have had a running joke for a long time. 
when someone says you want to do X, Y, Z, and I don't, I don't want to do whatever they're suggesting. I say, I would rather have a colonoscopy. Wow. So my dad used to make that joke and I always thought it was kind of funny, but then you actually think about going to get a colonoscopy and say, I don't want to, I don't want to do that, which is what men say, which is why we, you know, are, are clearly the dumber species or part of the species, right? I'll, I'll go with you guys and hold your hand. It is true, though, that uh, females do w- do way better with uh, going to the doctor, keeping up on different... Oh, they totally uh, Yeah. You know, they have those things where you go on a vacation and you do a, like a couple's massage, right? Where you lay on one table and she, in my case, lays on the, the table, you know, on the other side of the room. And you're both getting the massage at the same time. They should do like a buddy's colonoscopy thing. So no. They, no, there's no need oh, for you that. Don't think so? Dave and I, I mean, did a buddy's COVID test. We went together and true. we sat in the same room and got COVID COVID shots that together. That is true. Yes. Twice. Yeah. At Ford, well, I don't at think Ford it's Field. Quite the same thing yeah. as being, you know, put in a, a white cloak and be probed with some weird device. But well, you could talk sports or something and try to, I mean, maybe they knock you out. I don't no, you, know. no, you're knocked out. So it's not going to work. But yeah. The, it, well, the, 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 the test itself is, it's it's the prep that is the. That is the uh, uncomfortable part of it. Uh, the the test itself, you're you're out cold. So okay, look, I'm uncomfortable, and I want I want to tell you why I'm uncomfortable because there is, there are rather three days now before the Lions take the field again in Ford Field, which I don't think we you know really wasn't our on our radar. I know it should have been on our radar, I guess, but it wasn't because it was a bit of a surprise that that Dallas got beat up so badly. And it was a, a bit of a surprise that we would have a second home game after everything that happened with Dallas and the no call and the, and the reversal and all that stuff. So here we are as Lions fans. I know you're just a very lukewarm Lions fan. Dave. Going into this weekend against the Tampa Bay Bucks, a team that we beat up on pretty good earlier this year. And a win against the Bucks this weekend in Ford Field, which should be as loud and rowdy as it was, if not louder and rowdier this Sunday, has us in the national championship game or the, you know, the, the NFC championship game. That's wild to think about. Yeah. Yeah. You guys are essentially the Detroit lions are two games away from, uh, from the super bowl, essentially. Think about that. The lions odds to go to the super bowl were plus 900. Now I'm not a betting guy. Yeah. I, honest to God, I just, I don't even know how to do it properly. All my friends do. And they say they're saying things that I don't understand. And sure. so I just remove myself. But if I was to, if I were to, plus 900 means if I bet $100 and they go to the Super Bowl, not mm-hmm. win the Super Bowl, just right. get there. I Correct. win 900 Correct. Right. I'd put $1,000 on that all day long because they should beat this Tampa Bay Bucks team. They should, but those odds have changed now. Those odds are, the lines are like 10 to 1 to go to the Super Bowl now. It's, it's changed. Oh, I mean, I just looked them up not that long ago this morning. They can't be that much different, right? I have to, I'd have to look, but I think I saw something that they have, that they have changed. But the, they, they should have no problem with, with Tampa Bay. You wouldn't because think, right? Baker Mayfield is better than people give him credit for, and it's it's the playoffs. It's a different animal than four or five. When did we play them? Was it the fifth it or sixth? I think it was like week. Season? I think it was like week four, if I remember correctly. It was twenty to six. I think I think the Lions were missing six players. I think Montgomery went down early in that game. I don't think they had Jameer Gibbs playing. Um, it's true. And I uh, they, uh, but ba- here's here's one thing you know: ba- the defense is their defense is good. Their run defense is good. And and they're going to throw the ball, and Baker Mayfield is a gunslinger, and so and they've already started uh, with the trash talking. So yeah, look, that know, guy's got it's, a, it, it's already started. A pretty cool story. I mean, he was he was darn close to being out of the league. And oh yeah, life. I mean, but he's also he's, he's also number resurgence. number one pick too. So yeah, he's a Heisman really? Trophy winner. 
Was he really? I think he was. I'm pretty sure he was a Heisman Trophy winner. So shows yeah. you what I know. You know, I, mean, see, I just tune in and, and watch the Lions. I mean, but that should be good fun for all. Hopefully, we can, yeah. you know, well, I guess we might, we might not get a chance to talk to Lomas before the actual game, but the game's Sunday at 3 o'clock. Well, if you're filling in tomorrow, if Paul W. still is not, uh, we have Lomas scheduled. So I got I to gotta know this kind of stuff. I got a tight schedule with my colonoscopy coming up. <laughs> Correct. Right. Exactly. But, you know, Listen. this should be uh, – well, here's here's the interesting thing about it. If um, Green Bay goes in and beats San Francisco and Detroit beats Tampa Bay, guess what? Dream scenario. You've got an NFC championship game at home against the Packers who beat you on Thanksgiving to go to the Super Bowl. I think that would be one of the coolest stories in my sports life to play essentially your arch rival – in Ford Field in the post Aaron Rodgers era, and that Jordan Love is a phenomenal. And it would be crazy. You'd have you'd have a Green Bay Packer team that not only upset the Cowboys but upset the Niners coming into Ford Field after upsetting the Lions on Thanksgiving because the Lions dominated the Packers earlier in the year. Yeah, yeah, look, none of these teams are infallible. We we know that, right? I mean, in the NFL, the, the old. The quid pro quo, you know, stuff and and the, the normal platitudes like on any given Sunday, but it is largely true that that can happen. You know, I'll tell you what. One thing I'm sick of, and I won't harp on this subject. That enough with the, it's been 32 years stuff. Mm-hmm. That's true. But when they start talking about this team hasn't in X amount of years, this team is not the same team from 30 years ago. Right. These kids didn't live here. Right? Kids. I mean, I don't want to be sure. disrespectful to them. These young men did not live here. They were drafted from all different parts of the country. Some of them, like the Taylor Decker types and Graham Glasgow, they've been here for a number of years. Graham Glasgow, went to, Mi- Graham Glasgow went to Michigan. So, yeah. Yeah. It's got nothing to do with anything to talk about. The franchise hasn't had a title in that many years, has never won a Super has never been to a Super Bowl. It would be awfully, awfully cool. But let's stop putting that on these guys as if they have been for 30 years playing the same game and they couldn't get their act think, together. This think is of, a totally different crew. Think about these two. Think about these two facts. Number one, if I had told you that your final four quarterbacks, one out of, the, one out of these four is going to the Super Bowl, Jordan Love, Jared Goff, Baker Mayfield, or um, the, uh, the quarterback from San Francisco, Brock Purdy. None. Okay. I, okay, that would have been that's crazy. Then you've got two number one round, two first round picks in, uh, and may, maybe three actually, because I think Jordan Love maybe he was a first round. I'm not trying, I'm not positive on that. But Brock and a Mister Irrelevant, the last pick in the NFL draft, Brock Purdy. It's yeah. just insane. Listen, they tried to draft me in the first round years ago, but I was like, no, I don't want to do that. I want to be a financial advisor and occasionally right. fill in on the radio. Sure. Listen, <laughs> I mean, it's just, I mean, it, it, the, the storyline is just absolutely insane that you've got people, the, the likes of Dak Prescott is out. You've got um, Jalen Hurts is out. Uh, it's, uh, it's nuts. All right, look, after the break, John Recolt is going to join us. Uh, there's quite a bit going uh, or circulating around that Michigan will be lucky to retain its population size in a handful of years. It's a really fascinating story. I got a bunch of questions for him. Everybody hang tight back in just a few. Not that long ago, Marie and I had a conversation when I was filling in for Paul about Michigan's population declining and more people moving out, frankly, than moving in birth rates going down. That's really across the country, not specific to Michigan. 
And that there's a little bit of oddity to that as our as our climate has gotten somewhat milder during the winter, not this week uh, specifically, but it's gotten uh, also a little bit cooler in the summertime and we have no shortage of water as some states have battled that. So it seems like an attractive place to be, but we've had a, a, numer, a numerous amount of issues in terms of attracting new businesses to the state. And we're lucky enough today to have John Recolta join us. He's a former ambassador of the U.S. to the United Arab Emirates. And John is an expert in this. John, thanks for joining the program. Well, good, morning, or good afternoon. I'm glad to be here. And um, just one little correction. I'm really no expert. I'm just a normal guy like everybody else trying to see Michigan move forward and gain some additional prosperity along the way. Well, John, you know the old expression, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man gets to be king. And in this interview, <laughs> okay, well. you are the one-eyed man. All right, great. So well, I accept that. Talk me through, uh, you know, what is your affinity for Michigan specifically? And you've been, I read through this piece pretty well, and you've had several really interesting points. We're just not attracting new businesses here. Michigan's not a place that big companies want to come. There's not been a lot of cohesion. We don't have good tax policy. And we need to further prosperity as if, you know, if you pay them more, they will come. Talk me through it. Well, number one, I was born and raised in Michigan. My family's been here since 1906. Walbridge Allinger Company, which is our family business, has been around for 108 years. And uh, there was a point in time where most of our business was done in Michigan. We're primarily noted for the large industrial projects that we build. And slowly but surely, starting in the 70s, uh, our customers started to uh, locate these outside of the state. And um, we began to see the reasons why and uh, accelerated in the 90s and the 2000s. And today, I think we find ourselves at a crossroads uh, because of the uh, technological uh, sophistication of advanced manufacturing and the processes that go into uh, you know, putting these new ideas into place. And so, <coughs> excuse me, <clears throat> I have a little laryngitis today. I saw in 2008, uh, Governor Granholm had put a phenomenal package on the table to convince Volk Volkswagen of America to build their first assembly plant in Michigan. And Michigan got very close to winning that competition, but Tennessee won. We still built it. I went to Germany, sat down with the executives from Volkswagen and asked the quintessential question, why? Why not Michigan? And they floored me with a one-word answer, cohesion. I paused for a moment, asked myself and them, what do you mean cohesion? I'm an engineer. Cohesion is a word that's usually used for uh, chemistry and how molecules stick together. And instead they were using it for how humans stick together and pointed out that they had embarked on a rather significant study and picked uh, what they call six power centers and wanted to see how those power centers behaved. The power centers were the political parties, Democrats and Republicans, labor and management, racial tension, east-west, um, city-county, and, uh, and found that Michigan was uh, lacking in this uh, cohesion quotient, that we fought on everything. It was our DNA to fight and preferred to put their plant in a state where they knew they could work with these power centers uh, and uh, should the world economy change or the uh, sophistication of what made a, uh, a, a product competitive, 
that they had partners, strategic partners. And uh, Michigan just didn't fit that definition. And not much has changed in uh, the 16 years since 2008. And so I have been on a, I've been on a, on a, on a rampage, if you will, uh, trying to talk to my other Michigan citizens and the politicians that we need to do a much better job. And when the governor came forward and gave me this opportunity, I jumped at it. Yeah. John, the, the most interesting thing that I, I gleaned from that is when, when a company overseas looks at the, the different measurables that they can, and they find these five or six different categorical things, and they say, look, there's a state that we prefer above you because of its cohesion in these different categories. I, you know, there's a lot of powerhouse states when it comes to manufacturing and infrastructure and so on and so forth. Tennessee is certainly not one that jumps to mind, and it doesn't jump to mind over Michigan. So that, that must have been quite a wake-up call. And looking at what they do or they what, what their strengths were versus ours, what would be the most logical first steps if you could just make everybody aware, both on the Republican and the Democrat side here in Michigan, say, look, everybody wake up. We're losing people because we can't bring new jobs here and they might be leaving for better paying jobs elsewhere. Here's step one. What is step one? Well, in my particular case, step one is we need this change our K through 12 education system. We are poorly ranked across the country. We are not preparing our students in a way to be able to uh, move forward. And uh, so that's the absolute bedrock foundation. If you want to go a little bit past that, it goes past K through 12. We have to have a good uh, university system. And we do in some areas, but our community colleges and Smaller colleges have to sort of get with the program. And then mostly, we have to retrain the workers. Technology is moving so quickly that just because you graduated from college doesn't necessarily mean you're up to date on the newest things. And so that entire trajectory, K through 12, four-year college degree, retraining the workers are all something that we have to become world-class in. And we're not only not world-class, we lag the nation, we're now ranked in the bottom 10 states in terms of outcomes for all of those uh, categories. And too many of our university students are leaving the state. And so, you know, we've got this juggernaut that we're facing right now. So that's number one. If you want to go to what number two is, is that we're not conducive for businesses. We're not known as a business-friendly environment. And we're not uh, progressive and proactive enough in terms of the larger manufacturing uh, facilities, there are so large, these sites, thousands of acres that you need to think way, way in advance of preparing these sites so that when a customer, whether it be Ford or General Motors comes calling, you're ready to jump rather than saying, well, give me a couple years to uh, collect uh, the necessary acreage and then rezone it and then get the infrastructure. In the case of Tennessee, they had enough foresight that they began to do that 20 years ago. We've only begun to do that in the last couple of years. So, John, and I'm reticent, uh, this is not meant to be a, a disagreement whatsoever. I, I, you surprised me with that answer, the K through 12 specifically, because that could take you know, the incubation period to, to really see that turn around and then measure the, the fruits of those changes could take a couple decades, 20 to 30 years. But many of the people who don't end up with college degrees will end up in manufacturing jobs, things that don't require 
you know, a bachelor's degree in something. And those are the same jobs that we need here to support population. So from a purely from a forensic standpoint, if we wanted to attract more companies that would build manufacturing plants here, is it tax policy that they don't find friendly here? Or is it the, the governmental, the regulatory policy, or is it some of both? I don't think it anymore is tax. Uh, Michigan is no longer considered a high tax state. I don't say we're the lowest tax state, but when you sit down into these meetings and you see what are the drivers, tax policy is low on the list. It isn't in the top five. In the top five are, do I have a site? What are the electric and water rates? Are there sufficient quantities? What about the workforce? Do I have a talented workforce that I can draw upon? Those are the drivers. And finally, do I control my workforce? Are there laws and regulations that take the control of that workforce away from me, the employer? And Michigan has a reputation of beginning to move away from allowing the employer to have the kind of control over the workforce that it needs. And so it isn't any one thing. And I think that's the, the lesson that we have to learn here, that it's many, many things. And we have to do the smaller things and the bigger things efficiently become world-class because these companies, when they decide to locate these jobs, it isn't on a whim. There is a deliberate long process where they take their criteria and they actually physically measure. They go out and measure just like Volkswagen did. Yeah. And we do not measure well. well. Tom Volta, I hope they listen to you, my friend. You have a passion for this, certainly. And I hope they're, they uh, recognize the vulnerability and aim to change it. Thanks for your expertise, as I said earlier today. Everyone hang on for my buddy Paul Eisenstein after the break. Well, while we wait for a couple minutes to join, hopefully, our buddy Paul Eisenstein, the contributing editor for Headline, Headlight, rather, dot news, he is the guy that is uh, very much an EV advocate and, and a car expert. And I've always enjoyed having him on. I think it's probably getting to be a half a dozen times over the years I've had him on. I, I feel like car guys are often like golfers. There's always something we have as a common denominator. When all the girls are having a drink and talking about women's stuff, we can talk about the new Mustang or about the masters that's coming up or whatever the case might be. Last time Paul came on with me, we, I told him ahead of time, I wanted to have a really good scrap because I'm still not sold on the idea that EVs, especially EV when it comes to an EV mandate is good for the state, good for the country and good for the consumer. I think we're missing quite a bit there in the, in the regular old fossil fuel cars and certainly in the hybrid category. And he and I scrapped pretty good. And Rieger, I, I don't know if you're on the phone or if you can hear me, but we, you know, I still have a couple scars on my ego from my last Eisenstein conversation. And I'm not sure that it's going to get any better, but I don't want to, I don't want to fight with him today. And I, and, and I know now he's, he's ready to go. Paul, welcome to the program, Paul Eisenstein. Hey, it's good to be with you. It's good to be with you. And I promise you, unlike last time, I don't want to scrap, you know, I, I was just making the joke that you didn't completely sell me, but there's still a couple scars on my ego from our last <laughs> conversation. Like this, this new topic, though, is so interesting because I think that a great many people have often wondered, well, how does a tax credit even work? If I itemize my taxes even a little bit or I normally get a refund, do I just get a bigger refund? Now, now there is a, a system by which I can potentially go to a dealer wanting to buy an EV and they can basically take that $7,500 tax credit, which is different than a rebate. It's a tax credit and mm -hmm. immediately apply it to subsidize that into my payment structure, thus lowering my payment, right? 
Yeah, this is great news because, uh, <clears throat> by the way, you have to forgive me. I'm uh, going through some tests, so I'm <clears throat> a little bit, uh, a little bit uh, hoarse here, but uh, I'll try to keep my voice as much as possible. Uh, so, it, in the past, the way it worked was you got a tax credit, and if I bought a vehicle, say now. Uh, I might have to wait all the way till spring of next year, whenever I paid my taxes for 2024, before I actually got the credits back. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, it is really great because it basically can be used as a down payment. It can help reduce my uh, my upcoming payments. So it really pays off it, it, it now more than ever before. Here's so, Paul, if I'm just to clarify, yeah. if I'm the car dealer and I'm selling you a, a Bolt, let's say for forty thousand dollars, it wouldn't for, normally be forty thousand dollars minus any down payment that you took out of pocket, divided amongst the amount of months I was financing it for, and it spits out this monthly payment. Let's just say it's five hundred dollars a month. Now, right. what's being said is the IRS, so long as I have this certification process done and I submit it. They're essentially sending me $7,500 at some point, which the dealer can then credit as if it was a physical down payment and recalculate that as opposed to whatever I said, 40000 at like 32500 Is that correct? I should have been interviewing you. You nailed it. Uh, exactly. So basically, this is just uh, much like a, a conventional rebate. It, it can be used to offset your down payment uh, in some cases, you may just put down less money, or you may put down the same as you had intended to originally, uh, but either way, you wind up having lower payments going forward. Does that impact, the, you know, this may be more of a planning question rather than a car question, but does that, is there any downside to that for the consumer? I mean, if the average ownership in the United States of a car is, you know, three, three and a half years, and it's a 60 or a 72 month loan, might I find myself wishing I would have just taken the money up front because I didn't hold the car through its entire installment debt term anyway? Well, people tend to take uh, hold on to cars a lot longer than two or three years now. Uh, I think the average is more like seven, if I remember correctly, but I may be off on that exact number. Uh, I, I, I don't really see a downside on it because if uh, you have a choice, basically, you can put down less money out of your pocket mm-hmm. or you just have a larger down payment. So. You have that choice, uh, whichever way you go. Now, uh, you have to go to a dealer that has been certified, and it's not very difficult. Most dealers that are handling EVs, as far as I know now, have already gone, filled out the forms on the IRS, and so they're qualified. And by the way, there are incentives. They're about half the size on on used EVs. So you can also do this on qualifying used EVs and also have a smaller uh, smaller down payment uh, because of the the incentives or, or, if you will, the credits that you get from the feds there. But you know that uh, there's a downside to all of this, right? Sure. The downside is that we have fewer vehicles that are qualifying qualifying for it if. And here's where it gets really loopy. Uh, fewer vehicles qualify if you buy them right now. Uh, last year, it was dozens and dozens of EVs qualified for. And by the way, uh, this is both all electric models and plug-in hybrids. So, uh, you know, any of these that can run at least part-time solely on the battery generally qualify or were. Unfortunately, uh, the feds have 
put in place a uh, uh, basically a sourcing limit. And, and the idea is to try to get manufacturers to source the raw materials, produce the batteries, and assemble the vehicles in basically North America. Uh, and the rules got tougher this year, and they'll continue to get tougher for a few more years each year, raising the sourcing requirements. So uh, that means that only about 14 EVs or plugins currently qualify, substantially yeah, down from last year. But there's, the another loophole. there's another loophole we can get to. Okay, we only have about a minute. Go ahead. The other loophole is that you can lease, and oddly enough, leasing means that a lot of the vehicles that didn't qualify because of sourcing requirements suddenly do offer those incentives. Uh, what happens is it's the lease company, the finance company, that gets the, uh, the, the credits, mm -hmm. and they can apply it. And most are doing that because it's a competitive advantage. Sure. And they, look, one of the things I'd be concerned about, you know, so many buddies of mine in the, in the car business, the IRS is is notoriously understaffed, behind, and a little bit stodgy when it comes to technology. Has there been any frustration from the dealers so far about the implementation of this, and how soon am I going to get my money? If I pledge it to you on contract, and I print out your RD-108, and I have you sign off, and you leave with this payment, am I waiting months to get that money back as a dealer? Supposedly not. I don't remember the exact days, but they're talking about about this in, in a matter of days, if not a week. Uh, it's too new to tell if the rule changes have been fully and clearly implemented by the IRS. You know, they only went into effect uh, at the beginning of January. We'll have to come back and talk about this maybe in February, and uh, I'll be yeah. able to get a better sense from dealers if, if everything's going smoothly. Well, I'll tell you what, not, if you totally ignore the debate about the efficacy of the EV, you know, as opposed to a, to a normal petrol gasoline vehicle, this is a smart move on the government's part and certainly should help people who might be on the fence. If I could lower my payment 40, 50 bucks, all of a sudden that car becomes viable. I, I, I kind of dig it. Smart for yep. once. Yep. All eyes yep. sign, not you, but from the federal government, smart for once. It's a good deal. It's a good Thanks way to get people to buy EVs. We'll, we'll, we'll scrap again next time. Okay, everybody hang tight. <laughs> One more segment, and then we're out of here for the day. Okay, we're at the five-yard line, as I am accustomed to saying. Uh, Chris Alberta sitting in for Paul. Hopefully, Paul is um, over the weather tomorrow as opposed to under it. But if not, I may, I may be with you all again. Let's turn our eyes at the end of today's program to the real estate market. If you're anything like me, you've seen numerous headlines and some of the websites lately about uh, real estate taking a turn and limited inventory and interest rates are going up and the economy itself is, is teetering a touch while it seems to be strong at the moment. I think we all know that the end may be near, but that, what does that have to do with the commercial real estate world? And, and for that, we turn to Andy Farbman. He's the CEO of the Farbman Group. Andy, thanks for joining the program today. What's happening, my friend? Hey, Chris. You know, I feel like I'm uh, cheating. I'm Paul W. I've never been on radio with any other human being other than Paul W. So I hope he's, he's feeling better today. Well, I'm not uh, but, sure. I'm not sure if that puts me in a in a place where I feel inadequate, but I will try my best to make you sound great. I was okay? just trying to make you. I was trying to make you uncomfortable in this relationship that we're beginning to have right now. That's but, very hard to do. But for our first date, let's start off with this. What's the state of the commercial real estate industry right now? The mar how does the market look relative to the people who look at you know regular homes? So, you know, I, I, my specialty is in commercial, and, uh, and it's probably similar in residential as well right now. But my, my, the, 
what we're seeing right now is that there's a trans, there's, there's a transitional moment right now. Buyers and sellers are not finding their equilibrium yet. And so when you get into one of these modes of, you know, not knowing where the market's headed, you get into these spots where there's a standstill and you see a strike, you see a capital strike. And so we're starting to see some signs of that coming out because the last year was really, really weak uh, as far as transactional perspective of buyers and sellers finding fits. And so right now we're seeing just an uptick of maybe we've bottomed out and the markets are now starting to see some sort of fresh capital coming into play. Okay. And the average lease of a, a property, you know, I'm sure you do sales too, but I, I'm just in the, in the midst of signing a new lease on our space. When you look at these spaces, triple net spaces, and, and even ones that you may buy, it's a, it's a pretty long or a longer commitment, certainly than, you know, renting a house or an apartment for a year. Is it a good time from a, from a, a searcher's standpoint? If you're a business owner, you're looking for something, is it more appetizing than the residential market may be, or is it tougher because of the lack of inventory? So the average lease term that a, that a office tenant or a small business signs is somewhere between five and seven years. And so to your point, which is that you, you might decide of about space seven years ago and what you need today when your lease comes due might be totally different than what you needed seven years ago. So, you know, and so from a perspective of as a, as a, as a renter and a, and a perspective tenant, um, what you can get in the marketplace, there's lots of options, but it's finding the options that actually fit you. And so um, there are deals if you can find spaces that really match you. And so, you know, from our perspective, we really do believe, and in, in, this is self-fulfilling, but we believe that you should be well represented with a good broker who understands the marketplace and the needs of the current tenants, um, because finding that that space that's close to ready to go is a lot more valuable to you yeah. as a renter than you know than searching around and having to build to suit space because the cost of capital is as expensive for the landlord as is it, as it is for you in a business perspective. So if you need heavy TIs and improvements or tenant improvements to your space the cost of that space could be higher than it was the last time you did a lease, even though there is more vacancy available. Right. And Andy, looking at this from a business owner standpoint, like myself, on one hand, you know, if I invest in, in a purchase of commercial real estate that I'm going to own versus leasing it for five years, 30 years is a lot different commitment than five. And if should the economy turn southward and, and you know, spin out on me, five years is a lot less liability than 30. Are you seeing any kind of shift percentage wise in the amount of, would-be purchasers that become leasees instead? So the big users, right, the big users in our marketplaces are, 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 are shrinking space right now. And so these big corporate users, as they're redetermining their decisions, they have to make a decision, do they buy or do they lease? And a lot of the changes in leasing forms don't necessarily add an advantage from a tax perspective. And so I think it really is case by case and dependent upon the specific balance sheet of the underlying corporation. And in a lot of respects, the bigger corporations can do better from a uh, kind of a, a yield on cost by leasing than buying per, you know, per kind of your, your yeah, right. question. Of course. Are you seeing as we go into 2024, and that's one of the things I want to ask you is, you know, where do you see everything going 
in 24. You know, much of my, many of my clients in the financial industry, they're always asking me, well, it's an election year, but that has very little correlation to how the market performs as on the whole historically. But when you look at how many businesses now have acclimated to having people working at home, thus demanding less space for them, less cubicles, less offices, so on and so forth. Is that something that's pervasive enough where you've seen that continue? I mean, are there big companies that used to lease 30,000 square feet that now only need 15? Yeah, I mean, it, there's both sides of the spectrum here. And this is just a really interesting you know, piece of this decision-making process that uh, I, I spent a decent bit of time with young professionals. And the young professionals, when you ask a young professional that just graduated from Michigan or Michigan State or one of our fine institutions, you hear nine times out of 10 that their expectation of their next job, of their first job, is going to be in an office in a collaborative environment, learning from mentors, right? So, so that, that's a reality, that the young population is starving for collaboration in the office space. But the, the old guard, that has gotten used to coming in on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, right. and Thursdays is, is fighting to say, you know, maybe I don't want to spend as much time mentor mentee. Yeah, and so a lot of, a lot yeah. of this comes from the top. And so, so we have seen a big chunk of our clients actually upgrade space. In fact, uh, my brother and I decided to consolidate all of our businesses under one roof. And so like, we believe this right now. We, we just over invested in a brand new building in Farmington Hills, we are increasing our footprint. We are increasing our amenities because we believe that one of the difference makers that we have as a corporation is our people. And so we're investing in our people by investing in our space. I like that. And so Andy, I'm it, doing the same thing. It, then. Yeah. It, it's not just us saying it, it's us doing it. We're doing it. We're, 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 we're moving those hammers right now. So that's uh, you guys. Listen, you guys are at the top of the heap when it comes to commercial stuff. We appreciate you coming on. We wish you all the best in 2024. Certainly, if you have a need, contact Andy or any of his crew. Thanks again. Thanks for having me, Michigan, Dave, and Danielle. Glad I could come rescue everybody today. You guys owe me a beer. Okay.